From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. In early April 2020, we hosted our annual Global Business Leaders Forum online for the first time. The forum included several sessions on the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on business and society. Today, we'd like to bring you a session we held on how business can prepare for the next normal and develop new strategies to respond to the crisis. Our speakers today are Mihir Masoor, a partner in our Houston office and a leader of our work in crisis response, and Shubham Singhal, a senior partner in our Detroit office and leader of our healthcare work globally, including McKinsey's thinking and research on the future of healthcare. We start with Mihir discussing the latest findings from his and Shubham's recent article, COVID-19, Implications for Business. These findings are being updated regularly as the outbreak evolves and can be found at mckinsey.com forward slash coronavirus. Now, over to Mihir. Thank you, Sean. There is a large amount of uncertainty, especially on the economic side, as well as to some degree on the public health side. Given that, how can you as a business decision maker and a business leader start to take action and think about what the future really holds? Because a couple of things are clear. One is there is a large amount of information that is floating around. And depending on what part of the information you choose to pay attention to, uh, you can end up in easily a lot of optimism or a lot of pessimism. The second thing that's clear is by the time it becomes truly 100% clear which scenario we are in, many of the strategic actions that you could otherwise have taken while the scenarios were still emerging are going to become either infeasible or too expensive. You're going to run out of time. So how do you as a decision maker interpret the truth about what the future holds And how do you use that truth to then define and chart a path forward? Now, charting this path forward isn't easy. You have to make sure that you remain flexible where you have to be flexible. And you also make sure that you make certain choices and commit to them in the face of that uncertainty, right? So how do you make these balances happen? And this is hard. And this is not a muscle that organizations necessarily have to begin with, right? So here are some some guidelines for for the way you might start to think about this. We recommend you break down your business into the regions that are most relevant for your business, whether it is because you have a large workforce in certain regions, whether because those regions represent your biggest markets, but start by identifying the regions that are most relevant to you. At this point, you will have a sense of which of these these regions are most impacted by the virus. And you should be able to, from that exercise alone, start to get a rough sense of which regions are likely to return in some form sooner than others. You don't know this 100%. A lot will depend on regulations. A lot will depend on how the virus evolves. All of these caveats are true, but it it is useful still to, to indulge in that planning exercise, recognizing that some of that will change. And then for the regions that are likely to be impacted and are quite critical to the company, it is important to then start breaking that down into a finer level of detail and to really pick some indicators right, that will start to help provide a compass for you, uh, which will help decision-making. First, think about how much time that a particular region took from the moment that community transmission started to the moment that that region got serious about social distancing. 
And you can measure that in so many different ways. You can measure that by reduction in traffic congestion. You can measure that through restaurant bookings. But what is important is how much time did it take? That combined with the ingoing population density of that region will give you a clue on how large is the problem that, that the region is likely to face in terms of number of cases by the time all of this is said and done. You won't have a perfect answer, but directionally, you should be able to rank between your different regions. Second, you can start to get a sense of the length of disruption. It's extremely important how quickly governments and policymakers around the world will be able to address both the lives and the livelihoods, because addressing it quickly will mean that it's primarily the demand drawdown that you have to worry about as a decision leader. Addressing it slowly will mean that it's not just the initial demand drawdown, but, but the recession that follows the demand drawdown, where you no longer need a virus to believe in, in a continued impact on the economy. You want to measure that. And how do you do that? The first way in which you can do that is by looking at the rate of, at which daily cases are changing. If you, can, if you find that that rate is high, that effectively means that a particular region is bending the curve faster than others. And that will help you understand at least this region is reacting quickly. The public health system reaction is at a better level than other countries uh, or other regions, even if it may have had a bigger problem to start with. Then you can look at the economic side. For example, late payments or credit defaults, looking at volatility indices for the region, uh, you know, uh, breaking them down by sector will give you a sense of okay, you know, th these are all early warning indicators of whether the initial demand drawdown is translating to a broader recessionary impact. They're not perfect indicators, but they are valid early indicators of what could happen. And the more likely all of these indicators are, are, are turning red, the more likely it is that you're seeing a demand drawdown translate to a recessionary impact. Finally, you have a question around the shape of the recovery. And the question of exactly what shape the recovery could take is still up in the air. But there are a few building blocks that we can learn from other countries. We know that there is, to some degree, some way of getting healthy populations back into economic activity. Uh, and, and there are newer innovations that could allow that to happen. We know that there could be a resurgence in the fall and the level of preparedness of public health systems around the world to prepare for that resurgence could, could give a clue to the recovery. So actually thinking about what, sh what are the building blocks of any recovery and what shape could the recovery take will allow you to begin detailed planning faster than, than waiting until it becomes clear that all the cases are gone, the economic activity is restarted, and then you start your detailed planning. You'll probably be behind uh, some of your peers that have, that have thought this through ahead of time. We'll be back in a moment with more of Mihir and Shubham's session. Because the COVID-19 pandemic is changing so rapidly, we also encourage you to visit www.mckinsey.com forward slash coronavirus. There you'll find McKinsey's latest thinking on the coronavirus and its implications for business and society. Mihir was asked how leaders of companies can best get a handle on these indicators and the difference between a resilience nerve center and the detailed planning taking place now. What we are seeing companies do so far is to put in place what we would call an operational PMO to manage the biggest operational issues. How do I protect my people? How do I stabilize my supply chain? How do I make sure that I physically protect any customers that might be coming into my premises or in a B2B situation, be transparent with my customers about what our situation is, things like this. 
a crisis nurse center is not an operational PMO. By definition, it needs to include a plan ahead team or plan ahead teams, actually, that do two things, and they're very, very important. The first thing they need to do is to discover the truth about what lies ahead and what is the portfolio of strategic actions that you can construct in order to respond to whatever truth it is that you have uncovered. The portfolio of strategic actions, some parts of that could be uh, no regret moves, but many of them, most of them, in fact, will be trigger-based, which means that there will be a certain leading indicator, which if it turns red, that is the moment to actually launch the strategic action, not the strategic action itself, but the detailed planning on the strategic action that will inevitably lead to execution of it. So if you don't have plan ahead teams that are focused on discovering the truth about the future in a very tangible way and ensuring that you have a portfolio of strategic actions constructed, you should do that. The second thing that we would say is that discover the truth team should absolutely consider every scenario that is, uh, that is possible. It should evaluate that. It should ideally have red teams that it is working with to make sure that it is not biasing itself. The optimism bias can be a really big problem. But what is important is at the end of the day, the organization needs to have a planning scenario to deal with. And that planning scenario needs to include a set of simple assumptions that the delivery teams can then take on as their go-to assumptions. For example, assume that region A will be up and running by this time. The delivery team does not get to quench, question that assumption. It is the scenario planning and the strategic action scheme together with the decide team that will, that will then define that. This discovery team needs to make sure that the strategic actions team actually gets the benefit of all the different scenarios that they have come up with. Because confining strategic actions to only one possible scenario ends up in too narrow a planning effort. So making sure that you have a series of scenarios as inputs into strategic actions which then get translated, your scenarios will get translated into triggers for each of those actions in your strategic actions portfolio. One last point, your operational risk teams usually end up becoming very, very tactical, very, very quickly for the simple reason that you do not update goals for the operational teams regularly. So making sure that your scenario planning team together with your strategic team are feeding into that and are actually updating goals on a week-by-week -week basis so that you can stop teams once they have satisfied the goals, restart new teams, or update goals and reallocate resources as required is a critical part of any crisis nerve center. Shubham will now share his perspectives on how executives can think about planning through and beyond the crisis. Thank you, Sean. Just to kind of have a dovetail with what Mayor was saying, this is obviously a fairly significant shock. And as leaders think about the stages that you have to go through and therefore the horizons across which you need to plan, that they are going to have to think about five, uh, five stages. And to some extent, as a management team, when you think about it, whether you're a public, social, or, or private sector institution, you, you want to think about how you are organized to actually be able to be thinking about all these different horizons. Uh, because they do blend each other into each other. They can move really fast given the uncertainty. So let me just briefly kind of describe some of these. The first one is resolved. This is what we find ourselves in. Uh, all of the choices around public health measures that have to be taken, the expansion 
material expansion, four to five X in a few weeks of uh, health system capacity, expansion of testing, all of those elements are very significant decisions. If you're a private sector institution, decisions that everyone has made about their business continuity, how do you manage that? What are critical uh, functions that must continue, what might close? A whole range of folks find themselves in the resilience bucket, but the rapid progression of liquidity, solvency, and economic sustainability that plays through, whether it's institutions or individuals, is fairly meaningful. The planning for return is quite important uh, to think about. And there are a few different aspects of this. With vaccines and treatments fairly further away, just the fact that we actually managed to gain control through public health measures on the infections and just the fact that we are able to treat the critical cases doesn't mean that it won't resurge. And so how do you think about returning uh, once we have this under control? How do we get employees back? What distancing measures do you keep in place? Uh, how do you have to rethink and realign work so that folks can actually get back to work but you're not in the same place? In what geographies, what kinds of um, uh, parts of the economy can come back on? And then importantly, there's going to be a range of issues. In a lot of businesses, when you shut it down, it's not that easy to open back again. Employees and workforce that you may have lost along the way, bringing new people on, training them, getting them back up to peak productivity is a real issue. If you find yourself in a global supply chain, folks in China are finding this, you can start, you can try to start something in China, let's say the automotive uh, plants, but if the parts are made in Mexico, you're dealing with how the world is playing out. Uh, many markets may be closed. So, so how do you think about uh, the, the return is pretty important. And, and for, for governments and for healthcare companies, this will continue to be a challenge. How do you as a hospital system think about bringing back some degree of normalcy to operations and how much should you keep open in terms of capacity for critical care surges that will happen? For senior leaders, uh, it is important to be thinking further out. And we do hear um, a number of folks saying, hey, when we do return, I would like to come back into a reimagined future as much as we can. And that is a pretty important aspect because obviously the fundamentals of where we are are going to be very different. We can run some operations with less people what we can do remotely, how much more productivity we can get out, how do we move to a digital contactless world. And this is an accelerant to thinking about that reimagined future. But as we, and, and practically as we return, do we return to where we were or to the next normal? And what's that reimagined next normal is a very important question. Management teams obviously are tied into the crisis response, but you probably most management teams have a chief strategy officers, for example, they and their teams could be thinking about this and preparing for where, where that goes um, eventually. And then the final one, particularly for more heavily regulated industries, is what is the relationship between government, business, and individuals? We are in uh, wartime questioning and changing that quite meaningfully, whether it is what do we do with the use of information, what opens when, who gets what money, those are all important questions, and what of that sustains into peacetime, if you will? You know, in the last financial crisis, we had banks that had to change their capital and liquidity policies. Is that going to be required of others? Can we just have supply chains designed globally for efficiency, or are we, are governments going to in, intervene and want to put something else uh, in place? 
if you're either a policymaker, you'll be thinking about it, or if you're a business or an institution that operates, you have to think about what that regulatory construct will look like, what therefore the competitive construct will look like, and how you will operate in that. This is a material shock. This is not just a few weeks, hold our breath, and we're going to come back. And we need to think about this across these different stages that will play out and then across these different horizons. Shubham received several questions on thinking through to the third horizon, called return, and whether he's seen any indications of people thinking about their supply chains, their manufacturing, and their logistics. What we are seeing on the return so far is the practical part of it, which is what, where are we exposed to, what's the weakest uh, link in the chain? Is the weakest link going to be getting our employees back? Is the weakest link going to be where our parts come from or raw material comes from? So people are trying, uh, who are ahead have a very clear plan that helps them understand what that is. I do think people are beginning to then ask themselves the question that says, if you build your supply chain for greater resilience, what does that look like and what choices do you have to already start to make? But at a minimum, is going to be not to have concentration risk in any one area. So if you're only exposed to one region, you know, uh, and that, that clearly has been shown to be uh, a challenge, and how are you going to diversify uh, that risk away is also something that people are uh, beginning to think about. That concludes Shubham and Mihir's session, which was recorded on April 2nd, 2020. The situation surrounding COVID-19 is dynamic and evolving on a daily basis. For the most current information and insights on the implications of COVID-19, please visit mckinsey.com forward slash coronavirus. There you'll find regularly updated briefing notes featuring our latest perspectives on the crisis. We also encourage you to follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy and to connect with us on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.